Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or at whatever hour you are tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I will be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. With this year's Missouri Conference on History coming up in March, many scholars will soon be going to Kansas City. To help prepare for the conference, the Our Missouri podcast invites listeners to explore the city of fountains, from the confluence of two mighty rivers near the downtown skyline to the plaza, the Paseo, and the intersection of 18th and Vine. This five-part series, entitled Going to Kansas City, focuses on several projects and institutions that document and define Kansas City's history and identity. Today, we are speaking with Diane Moody-Burke and Jason Rowe, editors of Wide Open Town, Kansas City and the Pendergast Era. This new book is a collaborative effort by several scholars to research and document Kansas City's diverse population and institutions during the first half of the 20th century. Diane Moody-Burke is a professor of history and director of the Center for Midwestern Studies at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. She holds a PhD in history from Emory University and is the author and editor of several books, including Kansas City, America's Crossroads, Bleeding Kansas, Bleeding Missouri, The Long Civil War on the Border, On Slavery's Border, Missouri's Small Slaveholding Households, 1815-1865. Jason Rowe is the Digital History Specialist for the Kansas City Public Library. He holds a Ph.D. in History from the University of Kansas. He is also the recipient of several awards for his digital history projects through the Kansas City Public Library, including the Pendergast Years and Civil War on the Western Border, which won the Roy Rosenweig Prize for Innovation in Digital History from the American Historical Association and George Mason University. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast. Thank you. Um, Thanks for having us. Now, in looking at this collection in this anthology, how did this project originate? Well, this is a long time collaboration between the, um, the Center for Midwestern Studies and the History Department at UMPC and the Kansas City Public Library. Starting 10 years ago, we worked on a project about the border wars, about the Civil War in this region. And um, there was a, a big conference um, where people, we brought in scholars from all over the country and it was a big public conference to kind of launch the sesquicentennial uh, of the Civil War here in the region. And a volume came out of that and then there was an accompanying um, website, the Civil War on the Western Border, which Jason has been very involved with, that it won all sorts of um, national prizes for digital, digital history projects. So that was an amazing experience, and we felt like we were generating new scholarship about the history of this region, and you know, especially of Kansas City and and you know Jackson County. And so we felt like we needed to move this project forward. Um, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of scholarship about this city, and it has a really really interesting story. And so we decided, um, based on our really great experience the first time and the, and the wonderful, wonderful outcomes from it, that we should try another project. And this time we decided to focus on Kansas City during the Pendergast era because it's such a rich history. Um, so we did the same thing. Uh, we put out a call for papers. Scholars came in. We workshopped papers. We had a big pub- public conference where... Um, how many people, Jason, did you say you finally determined attended? Um, there was over 900 people um, spread across four sessions and one keynote lecture by um, David Kennedy, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian and talked about the Great Depression. So members of the public are clearly interested in this story and they came out to, to listen to a, a group of historians and various other scholars give papers of, about really interesting topics. Um, so ultimately, that also resulted in a website and the project that we're talking about today. As editors, certainly you've been involved with this process, as you suggested, for a very long time. What is your hope that the general reader will take away from these articles in this overall collection? One of the big takeaways for me is that um, it, it's very tempting for people in, in the public to view this era through the lens of nostalgia. 
Um, it's, it's a time when Kansas City mattered uh, nationally in a cultural and economic sense. It was um, it had a reputation as a wide open town, which is of course where we got the name from the book, um, and that's because of its jazz um, style, the nightclubs, the um, avant-garde art scene led by Thomas Hart Benton. Um, so it was a very exciting time, and there's there's a good reason for the nostalgia. Um, the time of bootleg liquor during Prohibition and um, mobsters and everything else. So even the the crime that happened and sort of the negative aspects of this have been um, viewed through a lens of nostalgia. Um, so one of our takeaways from this research is that we're digging deeper and we're um, finding the complexity and um, it really is an amazing story um, that we don't want to give short shrift to, that there were complicated racial dynamics that are explored in over half a dozen chapters in this volume, certainly disputes over voting rights. Um, there are labor disputes that are examined through the lens of race, race and gender um, in several chapters. So we're looking at kind of the positives and the negatives and trying to move beyond nostalgia. There's been this this idea that somehow this period was Kansas City's golden age. And, and there's a lot to um, recommend that idea and that this was a time where the city built environment was created by, by various city boosters, the Liberty Memorial, the complex town were built as WPA projects during this time period. So there was a lot going on in Kansas City. And I think um, the, the leaders of Kansas City really imagined Kansas City is the next great thing, you know, perhaps the next Chicago. And they were really working toward that. So they were doing things like trying to lure the Republican National Convention to town, which they successfully did, um, and, you know, set up a 10-year plan to build out the city um, and, and these various sort of public structures in a, in a, in a really sophisticated way. So they were... They were trying to capitalize on, I think, some energy that existed in the city at the time. But as, as Jason has pointed out, it's a really complicated history that's, uh, that accompanies that. Um, certainly the racial dynamics and um, the art scene and, and then the politics, which are incredibly fascinating from from this time period. And I think, you know, a lot of people at least have some sense of that, of Pendergast and the political machine and and the corruption and the crime. Um, but even that story is, is is a bit more complicated than it appears on the surface. Now, based upon the research done for this project uh, and from the kind of articles that were contributed in the previous conferences you mentioned, how would you all describe Kansas City in the interwar period? You mentioned as a wide open town, but I mean, did the average citizen know that this is uh, a town that was on the up and up? This is a town that has certain dynamics to it. Was this well known, do you think? I think that this um, sense of Kansas City as being on the upswing um, was really central to the identity of Kansas City at the time. People definitely um, bought into it, or at least that if they didn't buy into it, that all of the you know, if you look at the documents that were produced, um, and there was certainly um, that thread that going through this. And um, a lot of um, what you see with Kansas City during this time period is um, <clears throat> that it's centered on its role as a railroad hub. Um, it's geographically located in the center of the country. Um, I, it may have had the most railroad lines or connections um, of any city because of that location. And that enabled it to build industries. So if you're describing Kansas City at the time, then um, you, know, you would see in the West Bottoms um, enormous stockyards with livestock. Um, it, it was the second largest behind Chicago. Uh, we have a full chapter about the, the stockyards and the meatpacking industries, um, and of course those, um, and labor disputes. And of course those tied into the the railroads because that was um, you know, where the livestock came, um, were sold at auctions, or um, were processed in meatpacking plants. So 
all of this is connected um, and other industries as well, such as the garment industry. Um, so it was a very modern city, um, again, wide open town. And um, there was definitely a sense that it was, it was modern and on the upswing. Yes, that's, that's definitely true. And I think everyone wanted to capitalize on, on the promise of the city. I, but to go back to your original question, I, I think that that a lot of these different elements of, of Kansas City during this time or the, the different factions coexisted um, during this time period. So there are these business boosters who are pushing all of these industries and pushing all of this, you know, um, civic development. Um, but but they're coexisting with the Pendergast machine. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, sort of looking the other way as, as some of this corruption is, is playing out, um, uh, you know, because I think they all believe that they're working towards some kind of mutually beneficial end. Now, when we think of Kansas City and really in a not only Missouri history comp, uh, context, but also in an urban history context, Pendergast, as you mentioned, kind of dominates the, the, the kind of overall theme and, and the idea of, of Kansas City. So why do you think that this Pendergast era is so significant when we look at Kansas City? I believe that Diane started to touch on this with her mention of businesses and Tom Pendergast coexisting. And um, it was actually required that a lot of businesses would have to you know, pay bribes or otherwise cooperate with the machine. And um, the Pendergast machine controlled the full city government. So if you wanted permits, trash collection, police uh, were controlled by the machines. So if you um, were running uh, an establishment and you wanted to have gambling there, then, of course, you would cooperate with the machine. It's, I mean, it's even more complicated than that, as Jeff Pasley shows in his, his article. So he, he makes an argument that that Pendergast was kind of onto something as far as his political coalition was concerned. And he was figuring out ways to incorporate a lot of different people into his, his coalition. And among those were African-Americans. So he manages to pull African-American voters or to, you know, to, he's pulling them. He hasn't pulled them all, but he's pulling a lot of them away from the Republican party um, who they had supported since since Reconstruction, um, for obvious reasons. You know, they were not would not um, historically be inclined to support Democrats because of the racial politics of that party during this time. Um, but he managed to pull them away by sort of bringing them into the process to a certain extent. I mean, certainly not by and large in a leadership type of a role, although there were some leaders that emerged. Um, but he was handing out goodies and he was um, handing out patronage jobs and he was um, trying to um, to bring people in in all of these different ways and so he's really setting up um, a coalition that that predates the coalition that FDR started the democratic coalition that FDR started to move toward um, during the great depression um, he's doing that as early as the 20s. And so it's kind of um, trendsetting here in Kansas City as to, as to how this politics played out. Now, it's not all positive, of course. Um, you know, Pendergast is locating a lot of his vice industry in these same black neighborhoods. Um, so it's not, um, it's not altogether a positive story uh, to be sure, but, but it's, it's certainly an interesting story. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from This Week in History in a Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute about the days when Missouri went to war with Kansas. The Missouri Compromise seems to have provoked at least as much trouble as it sought to avoid. Slavery in Missouri would be one of its sore points between this state and our neighbors for years, but with Kansas it was even worse. Congress tried to keep the delicate balance by suggesting Kansas come into the Union as a slave state, Nebraska come in free. But Missouri slave owners wanted to guarantee that and flocked into Kansas in an effort to cast pro-slavery votes. They used force, and as the anti-slavery forces grew in Kansas, conflict broke out on the border. Lawrence was attacked by Missourians. Kansan John Brown raided Missouri. 
Missourians attacked his Kansas headquarters in Osawatomie. He came to Missouri for still another raid. Finally, the Missouri legislature appropriated $30,000 on February 24, 1859, to establish a military force to stand along the border to keep marauders from crossing the line either way. Civil War finally ended the border war. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. Now, you mentioned Jeff Pasley there and in his article on, uh, or his chapter on uh, the kind of transformation of the Democratic Party in Kansas City. What are some of the sections uh, that you broke the anthology up into to address these certain topics? And what are some of the um, historical themes and, so- and topics certainly that have been written in there that readers might find fascinating that they may not have known about Kansas City before? I'd like to start by talking just a little bit more about the title, Wide Open Town. Sure. Um, we, we mean for that to be taken in a complicated way, I guess. Um, so it's wide open and, and people know about the wide openness as far as, you know, ignoring prohibition and, you know, the crime and the vice and all of that. Um, but we see it as, as much more expansive than that because there were, there were all these things going on. Um, some kind of unsavory, honestly, um, certainly the, the political corruption and, and the vice, it did sometimes create opportunities for people to move within um, these spaces that might not otherwise be available to them. Um, so it offered up opportunities, certainly for business leaders to, to move forward um, with their various projects, business and civic leaders. It opened up the opportunity for African-Americans and for, um, for Mexican-Americans and for women and, um, you know, to, to kind of um, to expand the definitions of, of or to expand what they could do within these, within these communities. Um, you know, so there are articles about, you know, women, you know, just getting the vote and how they get involved in, in um, you know, city government and, and things like that. Um, but also it offered, a, offered amazing opportunities for artistic production in this community during this time period. So the way we have organized this is the first part is about, is called Politics and Progress in Kansas City's Age. Um, and it talks mostly about the political scene and about um, boosterism and the sort of civic improvements that, that we um, had mentioned earlier. The second part is called Breaking Barriers in a City. Um, and it focuses on stories of African-Americans and Mexican-Americans, um, primarily women. Um, and then um, the last section is called Culture at an American Crossroads. And it talks about this um, flourishing of culture that I just described. Um, so we can tell you in a little bit more detail what um, some of those sections entail, if that would be helpful. Yeah, sure. Okay. So Jason, you want to start with the politics and progress part? Yeah. It begins with an examination of uh, the racial dynamics in both Missouri and Kansas City at the time. And um, kind of the takeaway from that is that Missouri politics were very evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats. So there was an opportunity um, for uh, minority votes, um, namely African-Americans who made up um, uh, somewhere around nine or 10% of the population, um, at least in Kansas City, to be a swing vote that would swing elections one direction or another um, if if those votes could be unified um, in a particular way. African Americans, I mean, even though there is segregation in Missouri, they did not lose the vote um, during mm-hmm. the time period, which would not have been true in in other parts of this of the South. So that's a really significant point. Yes, that's a, a very important point, and kind of the point of that chapter is that um, African American um, that they were fighting to keep the right to vote and to make that right matter as much um, in as big a way as possible um, statewide and also in Kansas City. Um, and of course, uh, Diane spoke about uh, Dr. Pasley's article, which um, examines the way that Tom Pendergast is built on that um, racial dynamic and, and political dynamic to build a coalition that 
um, would be quite powerful. Um, and it was made up of um, working class whites who had labor interests and um, you know, Irish and um, Italian immigrants. And um, so it was a very diverse party that looked a lot like Roosevelt. Um, and then the rest of, of this section discusses um, politics and um, kind of racial dynamics, namely um, J.C. Nichols and all of his developments in Kansas City, which um, introduced uh, restrictive, racially restrictive covenants and redlining. Um, so all of that is examined. And um, then there's um, economics that are kind of brought into this with uh, the Federal Reserve being brought to Kansas City um, and the Republican National Convention brought to Kansas City. So those last two articles really touch on this, this idea of, of boosterism that existed among the Kansas City business community. So they were shooting for big things and they managed to accomplish them and they felt pretty proud about that. Um, and as far as the J.C. Nichols article, that, that one is interesting. I mean, people, I think, have a pretty good understanding of the racial covenant part of that story. And even the fact that, that J.C. Nichols was, while he didn't pioneer that idea, he, he certainly had some, he added some aspects to it that, that then sort of took off nationally and other people start to replicate. So he was a very important development figure in American history um, during this time period. And Sarah Stevens, who wrote this article, actually has written a larger book that, that compares all these different people. And I think she sees Nicholas significant figure. But the other thing that, that I think is interesting about that article is that she talks about, you know, so that's the negative side of it, but the positive side of it is that he had um, this really, um, I think, pretty sophisticated sense of design. So he was bringing in um, landscape designers to design his neighborhoods, and um, in a in a you know pretty artistic fashion. Um, and if you drive around those neighborhoods, even to this day, you can see that um, that's part of the reason. Of course, on top of the racial covenants, part of it, um, while those neighborhoods have persisted over time. The second section, um, Breaking Barriers in a Segregated City, um, really focuses a lot on questions of race, certainly, and, and gender, but also um, uh, it focuses a lot on class. Um, so it looks at, at working class people. So the first two articles are about the stockyard and the garment industry, but really what they're looking at are the workers in those industries. Um, so John Heron explores how um, African-American meat packers, I mean, he looks at all the, the meat packing um, laborers, but he focuses especially on the African-American workers in this industry who were typically working in the worst kinds of jobs. Um, but what he ends up arguing is that these were really good jobs um, for the time um, and, and, and steady jobs. And there are these really interesting moments where laborers within the industry actually um, work together across racial lines to try to um, deliver different, um, different things that they're hoping for. Um, and that is, is not an altogether typical story. There's a long history of, um, of racial tensions within the labor movement um, where people were not working across racial lines. So that's a really interesting aspect, I think, of the story here in Kansas City. And then um, another chapter focuses on the Donnelly Garment Company. So um, we learned a lot about Nell Donnelly, who is a really fascinating figure. She's a millionaires um, here in in Kansas City, she develops a garment company that of ready-made dresses for women. Um, she has a really good sort of eye also for design and, um, and she figures out what women want and this company really explodes. Um, and so she has a lot of women working in, in her factory. And basically what this is, is a story of how she tries to beat back their efforts to unionize. 
by doing things that, you know, you would, you would think are good that, you know, she provides a nurse to, to, you know, provide them with medical care. She has different um, activities outside of work. You know, she tries to make their experience fairly good, but she does not want the unions in her shop. And she um, works very diligently through the law and through her alliance with her husband, um, Senator James Reed, um, to make sure that that will will never happen. Um, other chapters talk about political activism of women and how they actually made some inroads on um, winning seats on the school board. Um, they tried to win some seats on um, the city council. They don't have as much of much luck with that, but they were very politically active in the in the years after having received the vote. Um, and then the last articles focus on the African-American community and on um, the immigrant, Mexican immigrant community in Kansas City. And I'll uh, mention that one article is about Lucille Bluford and how, um, and actually the, um, the case where she tries to take on the University of Missouri at Columbia um, to get into the journalism school. And she's thwarted in that attempt, but what she does is she uses the platform of the Kansas City Call, which was the newspaper that she um, helped edit, to, to make a case for why she should be able to attend the university. And so it's a fascinating story of, of her rhetoric, trying to, to mobilize um, the African-American community primarily, but also change the, the minds of, um, of white readers as well. And then there's an article about the Guadalupe Center here in Kansas City, which is actually celebrating its 100th anniversary this very year. And it started out as essentially a settlement house, kind of, you know, Jane, Jane Addams style settlement house where um, some middle class, upper middle class white women, Catholic women set up this, this um, center basically to help Mexican immigrants who had started to come into Kansas City in fairly large numbers um, around World One to work in railroads and um, meatpacking to a lesser extent, although they do that more over time, and various other um, industries around town. And eventually, it's—I mean, at first it's the men, but then the families start. Their families start to follow them, and um, Valerie Men um, Mendoza traces how this center, the um, Guadalupe Center, sort of changes from a place that's really very much controlled by these white women and what they saw as the needs of the community um, to a, a place that is really controlled by the people themselves. And they start, it starts to change over time um, and it starts to reflect what their needs are, not what um, their benefactors think their needs should be. And I'll let Jason talk about his article. Yeah, um, my article was about Kansas City's um, Black Public Hospital, um, which was General Hospital Number Two. Um, General Hospital Number One, of course, was the segregated hospital for whites, and uh, Number Two is um, sorry, segregated for for blacks. Um, so my article was exploring the. Um, I kind of started with the concept of um, Tom Pendergast. Uh, racial coalition um, that held African Americans as important uh, as an important part of his coalition, and um, you know, building on that idea is that the machine needed to uh, deliver certain um, benefits to the black voters to, to draw those votes. And um, I, I think earlier we mentioned that there were a number of black leaders who emerged, um, one of whom was uh, William Tompkins, and he um, was a doctor. Uh, he was placed in charge of uh, General Hospital Number Two, um, which had been established in 1908. And um, the problem with the building was that it was it was old, um, 50 or 60 years old at this point. It was fire trap. There ended up being a large fire um, that threatened patients' lives and everything. They needed a new building. Um, everybody agreed on that. There was disputes about where it should be located. Again, this kind of brings us back to which neighborhoods it should be located in. 
um, and kind of the racial landscape of the city. Um, there were lobbyists such as William Tompkins kind of leading the charge for this. And eventually they did get a new um, building built in 1930, um, which at the time of its opening was the only black public hospital in the United States. It was a new building and it was fully staffed and administered by African-American doctors and nurses staff. So the last section is called Culture at an American Crossroads. And I think it's probably the most fun section of the, um, of the volume because it, it focuses on all of this, these really interesting cultural aspects of Kansas City. Um, so, for example, one of the articles is written by Mark Rice, who's actually a musicologist and um, or a music historian, and he focuses on how, in fact, you know, all this wonderful Kansas City jazz that that um, the city is so famous for, that many of these bands were, in fact, at least initially during the 1920s, not supported by Pendergast and and his whole you know machine but supported more by the actual, um, by the African-American community itself. And so they were regularly hiring these bands to play at various charity events um, because there's a very flourishing African-American community um, on the east side of Kansas City with a a pretty solid middle class of, of people who are involved in all these different clubs and organizations. And so they bring in these bands to play for their, for their various events. Um, Chuck Haddix focuses on a band that probably most people have not heard of. Um, he's actually an expert on the Kansas City jazz style, but he focused his article for this volume on what was called the Coon Sanders Nighthawks Orchestra, um, which was a white jazz band that took advantage of the radio, which was a very early thing or a very new thing at the time. So this was during the 1920s and they ended up broadcasting a radio show at midnight um, from Kansas City, from one of the clubs and um, they became a national sensation basically. And so he traces um, the, this band and how you know it started out here in Kansas City and then ends up you know, becoming a big deal on one thing I think that is fascinating is that some of the themes from the beginning of the book continue to pop up um, throughout the book. And um, in Chuck Haddock's article, um, we'll see that Kansas City is in the center of the country and the, rail, the radio network broadcast nationally. It wasn't just, uh, it wasn't regulated in the same way it is today with uh, certain small regions. Um, so you could hear this band um, on the East Coast or the West Coast live on radio. Um, and that's what made it so unique is this kind of original national sensation. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's kind of a cool story, I think. Um, we Henry Adams actually also wrote a, an article about Thomas Hart Benton, and you know, at this point, he was already a nationally known, art, you know, um, artist, American mutualism. But he um, ended up coming back to Kansas City to work at the Kansas City Art Institute, and and um, Henry traces how how Benton came back here. Um, he, you know, he came back to his home state, and he had this idea that he would basically I turned Kansas City into a cultural mecca. Um, and so he, he essentially ended up establishing what, you know, I can only call a, a sort of an intellectual and cultural salon in his house where he would invite all these really interesting people to these, you know, large parties that would occur at his house where they um, you know, we're all talking to one another and, and singing together and uh, drinking together, I'm absolutely sure. Um, but Kansas City was a really interesting place at the time. It turns out that there were a number of, of people who fled Europe um, during the rise of the Nazi regime there. And um, the president of the University of Kansas City, which is now UMKC, um, was inviting a lot of them to Kansas City. So there were a number of artists and museum, mu- musicians and intellectuals 
um, who scholars who were coming into Kansas City to seek refuge during the war. And they all end up in this really interesting eclectic community um, that to a certain extent revolves around Thomas Hart Benton. I think in the end, um, Benton was a little bit thwarted in his his um, his plan for turning Kansas City into, you know, a national cultural mecca, um, and partly because he ended up running up against um, some of the the sort of um, elite Kansas Cityans because he was kind of a rough and tumble guy, and the thing that and he would sometimes say things that. I think we're off-putting to people, but when he actually got into the most trouble is when he went on a sort of a full attack on the directors, the director um, in particular of of the um, emerging um, art museum in Kansas City, which is is now called the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. But um, they had this rule where they they wouldn't, they basically would not display modern art, and so. Benton was really frustrated by that, but he went he went about attacking that rule and the people who made the rule in a in a very um, off-putting way, and and that is that um, he attacked the sexuality of of the director, um, and and you would think that that wouldn't have made a difference in the 1920s and 1930s um, America, but in fact it did. People didn't like it. Um, that he had had gone after him in this kind of way. Um, the last couple of chapters are interesting as well. Stuart Hines has has um, has a chapter in here about how um, there were female impersonators here in Kansas City in this you know wide open club scene that we that we've talked about. And what's interesting about Kansas City is that um, while female impersonation started to be shut down in a lot of venues um, throughout the nation in the 1930s and, and moving forward. Um, it, that did not happen here in Kansas City. It, um, the, this art form managed to flourish um, as, as we move forward in time. And then lastly, I think, you know, as the, the last piece of the of the volume, which I think really speaks to all the themes that we um, touch on over the course of the volume is um, Keith Egner's article about the Kansas City Liberty Memorial. And he traces the building of that building and the design elements of that building. He's an architectural historian. Um, so, you know, how it was built in this very, or fashion designed in this very modern way. And, you know, it was built by the city boosters who wanted to have this iconic structure in Kansas City and managed to make it happen um, in the early years of the 1920s. But then he traces the decline of the museum, or not of the museum, of the monument over, you know, by by the um, 1970s and 1980s, it was pretty a pretty rough place. Um, it had not been maintained. It was falling into disrepair. They had to um, close the tower for a long period of time. But ultimately, um, what ended up happening is the city came together to make sure that the monument was preserved. And they um, raised a lot of money um, and, and made this made it happen and you know ultimately built the, an, an amazing first class world war one museum by digging out underneath the monument which is kind of a cool cool idea um and turning it into something different so while it was you know initially a memorial for the, the men who had lost their lives during the war um it turned into a museum um, to educate people about World War One, as well as you know the monument part of it is there, but um, we think it really is a good symbol for what's happened in Kansas City in recent decades because we argue in our introduction to the book that there has been this this new um, resurgence of Kansas City, perhaps a new golden age for Kansas City, and what I think is most interesting about it is that a lot of of what is being revived is is from the remnants of this 19 and third 1920s and 30s time period. So, you know, the Crossroads District in Kansas City, the Liberty Memorial turning into the World War One Museum, 
um, you know, all of these, the built environment of Kansas City from this time period, you know, the time period where it flourished is, um, is now been totally revived and people are moving into the downtown and there's a lot of excitement and the cultural scene is flourishing and um, the business community is, is moving forward and, and, you know, really promising ways. And so um, it's all, it all circles back to this, to this earlier golden age. Um, and we can only hope that the new golden age will continue on for decades to come. Now, between the initial symposium that you had uh, in Kansas City and the, and the publication of this book, uh, there was the introduction of a website uh, affiliated with the Kansas City Public Library, the Pendergast Years. Could you tell us how that connects not only with this work and this project, but also kind of to a, wa- a wider audience of educators and students and, and the general public? Well, we've been really excited by um, the kinds of resources that we can offer um, through the library and uh, in its partnerships, um, not only with UMKC, but with uh, dozens of archives uh, across the, um, the city and um, the region. And uh, of course, the most um, noticeable intersection between the book and the website is that many of the articles are on the same topics. Uh, the articles on the website are kind of geared toward um, online reading, um, maybe younger audiences where they tend to be a little bit shorter, um, maybe a little bit less formal. They're, they aren't as um, extensive of footnotes, for example, but um, you know, the, the substance of the articles is all there. And we have an additional uh, four or five uh, thematic articles. And uh, what's wonderful about the internet is that we can provide um, so much more context that um, really helps get people into this era in a way that a traditional book cannot. Um, and that is, if you visit the site, you'll see um, thousands of photographs. Um, you can click on the image gallery, and there are um, pictures of the full built environment of the city at the time. Um, we, we worked with, again, partnering archives all over so that we could find um, not just pictures of the prominent buildings and the prominent people, but also um, whenever possible, um, the other neighborhoods. Um, so you can click on a map and see where um, you know, some of the poorer neighborhoods and some of the, the other um, regions, the West Bottoms and the North End where the uh, Italian community lived. So uh, you can click on a map and you can see where all of those photographs were taken and you can click and, and see a thumbnail of those items and, and click through to the item in the collection records. Um, another thing we've done, um, it's not just photographs, it's documents. So if you are interested in um, you know, voter fraud in the 1936 election, we have a map for that that um, shows you the precincts where um, voter fraud occurred and was prosecuted. And uh, of course, this is around the, the beginning of the fall of the Pendergast machine for um, this topic, for example, that they started to get caught in, in the 1936 elections. So you can kind of see that story play out uh, visually, and then you can click through and you can see the court documents and find out you know, how ballot boxes were being stuffed, how um, you know, voters who were dead were somehow miraculously voting, how um, on occasion, um, actually quite often, some of the precincts would report 100% of the um, population voting 150% of the population voting. <laughs> um, obviously impossible that those votes were supported. And, um, and then that generated court cases, which you can see today. Um, and one thing that we've tried to do with this website is um, ensure that everything is easy to navigate. We're taking advantage of, of every opportunity we can to, to organize all of the content into different topics and themes. So you can click through and read about machine politics and organized crime. Um, 
race relations, prohibition, women's rights, jazz, communities and neighborhoods, labor and industry, um, the economy and depression, and sports and entertainment and, and other cultural matters. Um, so that that is, differs from the approach uh, that a lot of uh, history websites have taken, where um, maybe they haven't had as many resources put into it, and they tend to scan and put them into a repository. I, I think this is changing, but um, we're, we're certainly on the leading edge of um, not just putting scanning everything and putting it in a repository, because um, that makes it difficult for people to search. And um, you know, if they don't know what's in the repository, it's hard to know what to look for. So um, that's kind of the rationale behind um, all of the different tools that we put in here, the maps, we have a timeline, um, and again, organizing everything into topics and themes so that you can click through, um, you can click on sports and entertainment and then click on pictures of ephemera, um, or you can click on um, communities and neighborhoods and read the article about J.C. Nichols um, and additional articles, and then read correspondence um, to and from J.C. Nichols and other important people on that topic. And what is the address for that website for people who might be interested in accessing it? So the website is named the Pendergast Years, Kansas City in the Jazz Age and Great Depression. And the web address is pendergastkc.org. And you can also find links to it on the kclibrary.org website. We are also excited about about this this general idea that we've talked about today that um, we believe that Kansas City is an understudied city but a very important city um, on the national scenes certainly and and in the state and our hope is with all of this that we will continue to generate new research on this really fascinating place and we feel like we can help some with that through through the production of these various volumes. But um, but the website itself, um, pr pr both websites present the opportunity for other people to take up this charge and move it forward. So we're we're talking about other possible projects we might think about in the future. One thing that we we've, we've discussed is a civil rights era um, history of of the city. Um, but, you know, we're hoping that in the future we can move this, this project of, of learning more about this town forward. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. For thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. If you're in the mood for a little bluegrass music to kick off your summer, Raw is the place to be on May 19th for the Ozark Picking Time. This afternoon, music and memories will be held at the Cedar Street Playhouse in Raw and features Jimmy Allison and Midnight Flight, Jerry Rosa and the Rosa Stringworks Band, and Meredith Sisko and Accomplices. This event is free and open to the public, though registration is appreciated. While you're there, be sure to check in with staff from the State Historical Society of Missouri to learn how the Historical Society is preserving the state's rich musical history. With the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center slated to be closed from spring to midsummer 2019 for the move to the newly constructed Center for Missouri Studies, you only have a few weeks left to view three featured art exhibits. In the corridor gallery, the exhibit Work Artwork consists of art by staff members and volunteers from the Historical Society's six research centers across the state. In the main gallery, visitors will find two exhibits, Benton's Perilous Visions and the Aesthetic of the Monumental Figure. To learn more about these and other exhibitions, please visit shsmo.org art exhibits. National History Day in Missouri is looking for educators, historians, writers, filmmakers, museum staff, and community members to join them at this year's state contest to judge student projects. State contests will be held on April 27, 2019 at the University of Missouri in Columbia. To thank you for your essential participation in National History Day in Missouri 2019, the State Historical Society of Missouri will provide a light breakfast and lunch, plus a travel stipend of up to $50 for judges whose round-trip mileage exceeds 75 miles. 
National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school age students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including judge orientation and how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org nhdmo. On March 2nd, join Joan Stack, Creative Art Collections for the State Historic Society of Missouri, at the Arrow Rock State Historic Site Visitor Center for United We Stand, a public presentation on how George Caleb Bingham's election series paintings showcased his views of America's constitutional democracy in the mid-19th century. The 61st Annual Missouri Conference on History, hosted by University of Missouri, Kansas City, and Park University, and sponsored by the State Historical Society of Missouri, will be held March 6th through the 8th, 2019, at the Holiday Inn Country Club Plaza in Kansas City. For more information about the Missouri Conference on History, please visit shsmo.org mch. Come to the Historical Society's Columbia Research Center's main gallery for a special one-week pop-up exhibit entitled Show Me Missouri Women on March 5th through the 9th. This exhibit showcases materials that share the story of how women helped shape the Show Me State. Society archivists have selected a wide array of their favorite photographs, letters, art, journals, and other artifacts, illustrating changes in gender roles and women's ongoing fight for equality. On March 9th, join senior archivist Aaron Smither for SHS MO 101, making the most of your research at the Stone County Historical Museum and Genealogical Center. In this presentation, Aaron talks about the society, its history, and the great variety of materials available to research centers at the six regional research offices around the state. If you're interested in learning more about Missouri's upcoming Bicentennial in 2021, there will be three opportunities in March to hear from Bicentennial Coordinator Michael Sweeney. On March 12th, Michael will be at the Friends Room of the Columbia Public Library. On March 16th, Michael will be joined by Senior Archivist Claire Marks at the Jefferson County Library's Northwest Branch in High Ridge. On March 26th, Michael will be at the Callaway County Library in Fulton. To register and learn more about these events, please visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org events. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our-missouri.